Hi, voice teachers. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music. Today's podcast, podcast number 43, my dear friend and special guest is Kristen Coffey Rondo. Kristen is a singer and voice teacher from Dayton, Ohio. She is in the trenches teaching private voice lessons, small group vocal classes, and ORF ensembles. Now, our conversation today is all about why it is so important to get our singers moving. That's right. Snapping, tapping, clapping, walking to the beat of their music. And this activity is often overlooked by voice teachers. Well, Kristen has some wonderful inspiration and some simple strategies for both the private and the small group voice lessons. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast. Resources for private, classroom, and choral music programs. And here's your host, Nikki Loney. Kristen, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for finding time in your crazy busy schedule to talk to me. Yay! I'm so excited to be here. I've been avidly and eagerly listening for I don't even know how long, and it's kind of crazy to be on the other side of the podcast now. It's a little bit surreal. Well, that's kind of how it works. So yeah. if if you're a listener to the podcast and then you contact me with an idea, usually you become the guest, <laughs> which is probably going to scare people away from ever contacting me I again. No one's ever going to email you again. <laughs> that's how I met Amanda Broadfoot because she contacted me about doing the um, – uh, doing the podcast about um, the special needs. Oh yeah, that was so great. Yeah, and she's she's in the trenches working with so, special needs kids, and I was like, "You're the person I want to talk to." So yeah. that's how that's how it works. So today, uh, well, I want to talk to you about so many things, but really, the focus of this podcast is about um, getting more movement into our voice lessons and we were talking before starting to record and I've been telling you with your inspiration um, and you share some wonderful things on your social media accounts and you have beautiful videos of you working with your kids and doing all this movement so that's the theme that's the topic we're talking about is movement but before we get into that I always love to know how my guests started singing and then transitioned from singing into teaching. Yeah, so I, I had the great fortune of growing up um, with a pianist. My mom was a piano major and music ed major. And so I grew up right next to her at the piano, you know, rather than bedtime stories, usually we would sing. And so I grew up singing show tunes and Great American Songbook and all that stuff with her. And um, she she was not a voice major, but she took enough voice in college to know technical stuff and sort of get me on the right track. And then I uh, uh, did a bachelor's and master's in vocal performance. And um, yeah, I just, I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't singing. And it, so when it came time for college, it just seemed like a natural progression. Of course you go major in music. And so I did. Nice. And she was super supportive of you going into music. <laughs> she was, she was very glad that I loved music, but she also wanted me to, um, find something that could get me a job <laughs> because <laughs> as, as we know, um, you know, there's not a ton, I mean, with a vocal performance degree, it pretty much is what it is. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so I, I, 
it was it was sort of a given that I would go get a master's at, at least because that would you know sort of feed into hopefully something. But um, yeah, she she was. I mean, both my parents were really really wonderful and really supportive of of my singing, um, for which I'm super super grateful. That's awesome that your your family was so musical. Oh yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, my parents actually met. Um, my mom was, my parents were going to college together and my mom was the rehearsal accompanist for Oklahoma and my dad was the peddler. Oh, <laughs> I know. that's so lovely. Isn't that the sweetest <laughs> bit? Yeah. So, um, super fortunate to be in, in such a musical family. Now, how did you transition from a performance major into teaching? Yeah. So, I was going to be an opera singer because we all know how easy it is. Like, right. You just go get a master's and then you're an opera singer and it's done. I mean, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> it's not, it's not like there's this whole other process and whole other way of life that they don't tell you about. Um, so I, um, yeah, I, I got married right after undergrad, like within, I think a week of graduation, I got married and my husband is, uh, yeah, we did not play. It was a super fast engagement, super fast wedding. Um, my husband is active duty air force. So right after graduation, I was, I was in Georgia at the time and we moved to New Mexico. Wow. Like middle of nowhere, New Mexico. <gasps> and, um, and I had, no musical outlet. I literally knew one person in the entire state. You know, it was a, a total, I mean, every military spouse goes through this experience of like, oh shoot, I don't know anyone. I don't even know where the post office is. And, um, but so I needed something musical and there was really not a lot in this town. And, um, and so I just started teaching and, um, it just, I, I, came to realize that I really, really enjoyed it. And I love, I mean, this is a common story to most of us. I loved, um, being able to meet specific needs of specific students. And I, I enjoy teaching a wide range, you know, so, I mean, usually my studio has, you know, every, like six year olds to 40 year olds, you know, there's not like a specific demographic and, um, and I just really, really loved it. And then, um, you know, kept, kept teaching and kept taking lessons too. And then did my master's and, um, it just sort of just the natural evolution was, I, you know, I, I, I keep singing and I, I still study voice and I, and it, that's something I still want to cultivate in myself, but I really love the teaching aspect of it. Which is why I'm so excited to have you here. You do a lot of work with ORF, the ORF uh, system. Mm-hmm. And can you, for those of us who aren't as familiar with that philosophy, can you kind of give us a little overview of that and how you discovered that method? Totally. Yeah. And I, right out of the gate, I love that you call it a philosophy because that's what it is. It's not a curriculum. It's not a method. It's, it's a way of thinking. And, um, and when you go do ORF levels training, they tell you, you know, you're not here to learn the hows you're here to learn to think like an ORF teacher. Um, and I want to be real clear, like it's still super new to me too. I am not an expert by any stretch. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm a practitioner, but there's so much that I don't know. And I mean, you know how it is like you go and you sit with like a master teacher and you're just like, Oh my gosh, I could just listen to you all day. Can I just write everything down? You're just so amazing. And, um, and so the, there's so much that I don't know, but the little bits that I, that I have picked up on, um, ha have been really beneficial for, um, studio work. So, 
um, you asked how I, how I came to ORF and, um, it's sort of a funny thing when I was a sophomore in college, I think it was maybe like 2004. I don't know. I took piano pedagogy. I am not a piano. I can't play my way out of a wet paper bag. I don't know how I ended up in piano pedagogy with all these piano majors. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> but uh, the professor was a really great, well, number one, she was incredibly gracious to me. <laughs> and number two, she was a really fantastic music educator. And she was a, a proponent of the off the bench activities long before that was ever part of our way of thinking. She, she had been doing that from the get-go with her students. And so she did a module, like a three-week module, where, you know, one week we studied Dalcros, one week we studied Kodai, and one week we studied Orp. And, you know, I was a 19-year-old idiot thinking, like, this is super cool, neat. It doesn't affect me at all because I'm going to be an opera star. But it's nice to know about, you know. Um, and then over time, as we kept moving, you know, my husband and I kept moving from place to place, people would ask me, hey, can you give my three-year-old voice lessons? You know, and so, or, you know, like I've got this group of, you know, homeschool kids between ages, you know, four and 10, what can you do with them? And, uh, and so I started realizing I, I, I can't do the traditional voice lesson model with these kiddos, but they need, they need training. What do I do? And so- when we got, we're in Ohio right now. And when we got here, so like all along the way, I had been kind of just reading blogs and picking up books here and there on Orphan Kodai. And when we got here to Ohio, our, I learned that our church had a set of gorgeous orphan instruments. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And like these things, I mean, these things are super expensive. I mean, each orphan instrument is between like 600 and a thousand dollars American. And, um, that's and like so, a like, million dollars Canadian. I now that I know you and Shannon, I feel like I always have to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> that's the running joke. That's the running joke with our with our group is anything that's quoted in American dollars, we always immediately convert it and it's going to be way more expensive. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but so I thought I got to learn how to use these things. And so University of Kentucky has a fabulous or like summer institute. And so I took two summers and went and did level one and level two. And so, um, that's, so I have a level two or certification and, um, that was so such an unbelievable stretch for me because my whole paradigm is vocal performance. And so to go in and be the only, the only person who did not have a music ed degree in a class of you know, 30 music educators, you know, I mean, I was the only one with a private studio and very little classroom experience. And I learned so much from these people. I feel like in the voice world, we sort of snub our noses at people who majored in music ed, which is really stupid. Um, I don't know. Do you get that impression? I do. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that there's so much that we can learn from classroom teachers. So much of the changes in my teaching studio over the years have come from classroom teachers, blogs and resources. And I think we can do better. Yeah. So, you know, I... While I might have known how to teach vocal technique, I realized I don't know how to teach fundamentals of music. I, I don't know how to teach this stuff. And so through doing the ORF levels and then through just watching these fabulous music educators, just some things began to click for me um, in, in how to make that happen. And 
you know, and I think, and this is something that you're real big on too. A lot of times as voice teachers, we say, well, it's not my job to teach musicianship skills. It's not my job to teach theory. It's not my job to teach you how to count or, you know, we teach technique and style and what a disservice we do to our students and to our partners in music education when we do that. You know, what if we had a two-pronged approach where, yeah, kids got it in schools, but then when they came to our studio in the afternoons, they got it again from a different angle, you know, and how better we could support our colleagues in music education if that was how we approached it. Well, I love that. I love everything that you just said there. Like it gave me goosebumps. I don't know what it's like for the schools. I mean, it depends on the school board and where you are. But I mean, the kids aren't getting music education like they were. I mean, those are the first programs that are cut. So to think that somebody else is going to do that is really wishful thinking. Absolutely. And even if they are coming from a good program in their school, the more perspectives they can hear on it, the better. The more ways they can think about a musical problem and learn different approaches to solving it you know, I mean, how much more equipped and empowered they'll be. Um, but so your, your, your question was about, or philosophy, and I totally derailed. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's a lot. I have a very long outline. <laughs> I'm trying to give a very brief overview. Um, and, and to those who are listening, who already know about this or know probably much more than I do, rest assured, I'm going to leave out important stuff because I just am. Um, and because there's just so much to it. And so I apologize for all the important things I'm inevitably going to miss, um, just right out of the get go. But so when we say Orff, we are talking about Carl Orff, who everybody knows from Carmina Burana. Um, and he, he um, was educated in Munich. He sort of came of age in Munich. In, um, he was born in 1895. And so he was in, um, you know, he was around that time when you also have Bartok and Kodai doing their thing. You know, so there's this sort of convergence of ideas in all in different countries, but in the same sort of region of the world, all coming to this idea of, we need to be learning what Orff called elemental music and what Kodai called the music of the mother tongue. Um, this idea that our folk songs are what inform our culture. And we need to be embracing these ideas and these traditions and these melodies and these rhythms because um, Orff called it the, the humus of the spirit. This type of elemental music is common to all people and all civilizations and our children need to know it. And so... He began, um, he began working with children, um, and, and he developed, you know, the system, which is rooted in speech, movement, um, percussion instruments, and song. Um, he worked with a dancer and a gymnast named Dorothy Gunther, um, and they, she had a school called the Gunther Schule, and, um, it was it was for young women who were dancers and gymnasts, and Orff became the the director of music there. And he saw these women dancing while they were playing recorder, while they were playing drums, while they were play, you know doing all sorts of things with um, pitched and unpitched instruments. And he he began thinking like, there's a way to tie all this together. There's a way to tie together music and movement that previously in their paradigm had been separate. And so he began working with one of the students there. Her name was Ganild Kateman. 
and she um, she was a, a gifted dancer, a gifted musician, and she was a gifted recorder player. So Kateman is one of the big reasons why we associate recorder with elementary music ed um, because she she wrote tons and tons and tons of pieces for a recorder, and she she was just a, a, a virtuosic recorder player. Um, but anyway, so Orf and Kateman together um, wrote they call it music for kinder, um, all of these volumes of just real simple, sweet melodies for children. Some of them are folk tunes and some of them are just, you know, they wrote them together. Um, small pitch sets, usually like pentatonic, mm-hmm. um, and sort of gave them arrangements. So as you know, we were talking about the ORF instruments. Um, he, he realized, you know, you sit a kid down at a piano and they, they kind of panic because it's just so big. It's just so much. And so he developed these, they look like small xylophones or marimbas and they have removable bars and they're just, they're perfect kid size. And, um, and you can set them up in, you know, whatever like pentatonic arrangement you want. And, um, and so he, you know, he developed this collection of, of instruments and then of course added in unpitched percussion and recorders and, um, you know, and so the, the whole philosophy is it's speech, song, movement, and dance, but your body is your primary instrument. And, um, and what he, what he said that I love, this is one of his, like, everybody knows this quote. Um, I have it pulled up here on my computer. Since the beginning of time, children have not liked to study. They would much rather play. And if you have their interests at heart, you will let them learn while they play. Um, I love that. And isn't that great? I love and we that. see that. We see that all the time, don't we? We see that all the time. And how often do voice teachers shy away from that or refuse to open their doors to that? And and this is what I love about this is this is why so many teachers are not successful with kids because they won't let them play. They want them to behave like little adults. And then when they don't, they say they declare that they're not ready. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, Orff's big thing was children are inherently musical and it's incumbent on us to shape that. So, Mm. you know, I've really been thinking about this a lot. And the analogy I came up with was it's not that teachers are the potter and students are the clay. It is that teachers are the chrysalis and the students are the caterpillar. You know, oh, I love not, that. We're not molding them. We are creating a safe space for them to become what they already are. Mm. And so we do that through giving them sort of musical problems and saying, okay, what do we do? What does this sound like to you? What if we tried, you know, so rather than giving directives, we, get, we, make, it, we make it theirs. You tell me, how would you approach this? And then we take what they give us. And, you know, it's this whole idea of um, sound before sight. We have them speaking these rhythms and doing, you know, very complicated body percussion and, you know, singing all kinds of amazing pieces before they ever even think about written notation. Right. And then, but once it's already in them, then you show them what they did. And they're like, oh, oh, that's a dotted quarter note. Oh, cool. I know how to do that. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's that idea, are we telling students what to do or are we equipping them to discover what to do? And I think as voice teachers, we, we see these conversations repeat themselves again and again because, you know, like terms like support are so fraught or 
placement. You know, everybody sort of panics about these different things. And we don't, as voice teachers, we don't have a universal language because what feels, you know, healthy, efficient singing to me and my instrument is going to feel different than it does to you and yours because just, you know, we're just built differently. And so rather than giving students directive of, you know, whatever, like seeing where you feel the buzz in your cheeks or the smile in your eyeballs, you know, all these things that, you know, people say, um, you know, what if we worked backward and we listened for that healthy, efficient, free sound. And then we asked them, okay, cool. What'd you do? Yeah. How'd that work? How did that, can you describe that in your words? You know, because buzzy to me is going to feel different than buzzy to another student. Light to me is going to feel different than light to another. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So all these things are so subjective. So why not let them lead in their unique terminology of their unique instrument? And then they're going to retain it. It's that idea of, you know, tell me and I forget, show me and I remember, involve me and I understand. Mm Mm-hmm. If they are if they are tasked with the responsibility of coming up with their own vocal vernacular, they're gonna it's it's gonna click a whole lot more easily, I think, than if we just tell them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 if anything, I want to abolish the master apprentice approach. Yes, yeah, it doesn't work. And meet them where they are, and and don't feel like you have to get everything in <gasps> in one yes. lesson. You know if pick one thing. And I mean, truly, truly, if they've had fun, if you've made them laugh, Mm. if they've seen, if they've seen you taking a risk and being vulnerable, like you were talking about movement doesn't feel comfortable. Movement feels horrible to me. It is so embarrassing to me. It is so intimidating, but I don't want my students to feel that way. So I will make a fool of myself taking risks and looking stupid so that they can see that it is worth it to be that inherently musical mover so that they can feel confident moving on stage, so that they can feel confident taking risks and looking and carrying themselves like the poised, proud musicians they should be. So, you know, like, let's, like, we need to narrow our scope. Because I think with the Master Apprentice model that you're talking about, we have this idea that, like, I've got to get it all in. In one lesson, you should understand breath and palate and resonance and formants and whatever else and like and languages. Right. <laughs> and and honestly, that has always been a challenge for me. I get really wrapped up in trying to I I do one of two things. I either give them far too much information or I I just give them too much intense information on one Mm. specific thing. And if there's one thing that I'm super mindful, uh, and I have a little post-it note, like on the, on the keyboard there sometimes is like, you know, just keep it simple. Like just let them do more singing and exploring and, and not less, less me lecturing and more of them singing and exploring. And that's, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. Um, and I try to watch my students carefully because when I see them glazing over, I know that I need to zip it and let them start participating more. Yes. One of the things that they talk about in ORF training is um, banning teacher talk. So the idea, yeah. So the idea is you get them doing, you get them making music from moment one and whatever you can convey with gesture or body language, do that. Um, 
and only talk if you absolutely have to. And even then try to let them be the ones like you, you know, like you were saying, like, let them be the ones who through your questions and your prompting, they're making the discoveries. Oh, that, okay. That's my challenge for next week. When I come back after the break, <laughs> people are going to think I'm sick. Cause I won't be talking. I'm right. I'm Nikki, do you remember last winter when I was like chronically hoarse and yes, I couldn't, yes. so I, but I couldn't cancel all my lessons. So I had to teach silently and it changed so much. Oh my, I, like I learned so much about my many pedagogical crutches. Wow. Through that time. Yeah. Um, now I wanted to ask you, um, and again, you were the inspiration for me to get back to my small group vocal classes. So you've been facilitating uh, small group vocal classes for quite some time, utilizing all of your wonderful skills. So can you tell tell us a little bit about uh, what's happening in your teaching studio right now with your small groups? Yeah. So right now I have um, three classes, one for little bits around four and five, and then one for eh, ages six to eight, and then one for ages eight to 10. And um, right, right now I don't have access to ORF instruments, but when I do, you know, we use those as well. But even in, you know, even in what we're doing in my, my studio at home, we're still it's still ORF. I think a lot of times people think if it's not recorders and it's not barred instruments, then it's not ORF, but that's not, that's not it at all. It's, it is, again, it's the philosophy, it's the approach. It's, is this child led, is this, um, you know, creative play, creative exploration. So, um, uh, you know, on, on a practical level, that looks like we'll use um, a lot, lot, lot of body percussion. We use a lot of folk music. We use a lot of um, echo back or like mirroring movement games. Um, we use a lot of, okay, you be the leader, you know, so like I'll give them something to echo back to me. And, you know, we'll do that a few times and then I'll say, okay, who wants to be the boss? You know, and everybody gets to take turns coming up with like a body percussion pattern for us to follow or um, lead us in movement exploration or vocal improv or whatever, or even just, you know, even just like basic follow the leader, you know, I'll put on some music and, you know, one per we, you know, find the beat. And, you know, we follow this one person and we do whatever they do. And then, you know, you switch a and, you know, kind of keep it going that way. Um, all sort of geared towards developing awareness and sensitivity to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's a collaborative art form. So if we're not able to pay attention to each other as musicians and respect the inherent musicianship in each of us, then, you know, I mean, it's that's we kind of miss the point. So. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. Um, I just want to share with you, uh, that, that exercise of just putting on music and getting the student to tap to the beat of music. I want to challenge every voice teacher listening to this podcast right now. You have to try that exercise with your students, including your adults, because, uh, that is not an easy thing to do. Most vocalists, even my adults that have been singing for years have never been put on the spot and been asked to do that. And oh, how they struggle. Oh, yeah. And that's one of my homework assignments now. It's like when you are in the car, don't get into an accident, but tap, <laughs> tap to that beat, feel that beat. Yes. And, and um, uh, 
one of the other things I wanted to share with you, so with my with my vocal group that I had, so I had six seven year olds. Um, how how giving them the instruction of okay, you come up with a body percussion in the beginning made them very uncomfortable. Oh yeah, but towards the end of the session, like we did eight weeks how much more confidence they had in their bodies how much how much they were looking forward to going okay this is my pattern and how eager the other children were to to be creative like you know the first the first percussions they would do were just like clapping and maybe if they were brave they would stomp right right so you'd show them well what about if we tap here or what if we tap on our arms and and it took a while for them to really embrace that but it was so interesting and again teachers out there listening to this even in the private studio like letting your students tap on their hip or tap their foot oh my goodness you will see so much it's so telling it's so informative what I love doing is my adults right now (laughs) they are uh well they're pretty unhappy with me right now for making them do this (laughs) but I always tell them I always tell them you know hate me now love me later Mm -hmm. (laughs) so and they've come back uh they've come back to you know to their next week's lesson they go you know what this was a very helpful exercise you know I noticed in choir I was more aware of the piano playing the steady beat when I was singing my part Yes. So it's funny that you say that. So, um, Rob Abramson, who's a a Dalcro's educator, um, he says children use kinesthesia to learn about the world around them, but Western education attempts to train the mind and pays little attention to the kinesthetic sense. And isn't that true? We sit in desks, we write, you know, we, we don't necessarily experience things with our bodies. And for kids especially, but for adults too, we need to begin to think of ourselves as movers. Our bodies are always in motion. Whether or not we're traveling, whether or not we're going to a place, changing direction, changing position, we are physically always moving. And our bodies are inherently rhythmic. And we start to think of ourselves as like, oh, I'm not a dancer. Oh, I don't have any rhythm, you know, whatever. And, you know, and it's these little insecurities that we train into ourselves over time. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got a 32 year old who wants to sing for her dad's birthday party and she has no internal sense of rhythm and you have to help her find a steady beat again. And, you know, and what an honor and a privilege to be able to help her rediscover that. But what if she had never lost it? I know. What if we could keep that from the start and foster that? And like you said, um, so like one thing that we do, I mean, again, my, my students, they're used to it now, but they, they balked at first. Um, yeah, any, any song that they're working on, really before we even work technique, we are, we are stepping the beat. We put the beat in your feet, you know, so I'm like, I don't care how you sound while you're singing this. You can even just speak it in rhythm on, you know, the same note. You can just drone it. But I want to see that. I want to see the beat in your feet. Whatever time signature we're in, I want to see you walking that. Mm. And, you know, and now sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Of course, if we're in six, eight, I'm having them sway or whatever. I'm not having that, you know, (laughs) but (laughs) sometimes it's less successful than others, but um, it, it helps them just get a sense of the, the bigger picture. You are not just a, a melodic line. You are the whole thing. You are the whole bit of music. 
Well, and I think, too, for our teachers out there that are teaching advanced repertoire, like for me, I mean, I love my background is jazz. That's such a feel. Like if you don't feel the music, you, it doesn't matter how wonderful your vocal technique is, you won't be uh, successful with that genre. And of course, if you're singing advanced 20th century music with the different time changes. Oh, goodness. Right. right? So for our advanced teachers out there, um, this is something that they really could help there and serve their students and connect with their students on a different level and really help them with that. So... Absolutely. And even something as simple as using, you know, even if you don't have people swaying or marching or whatever, um, even just giving them a movement to fill in a rest with so that they don't sing through the rest. Um, you know, just giving them like snap on the rests or in my choir, I don't, I don't want to pop your mic, but in my choir, we all go, it's so silly that it gives them a tangible, like, this is not blank space. We are filling this with something so that we don't sing through it. Because it's really easy to think about movement being like, oh, this feely-willy kind of thing. But it has a real pedagogic sense of, you know, you can use it for so many different aspects. Um, I've seen, I got, I had the opportunity to attend a, a Dalcro's workshop at the um, OMEA weekend a few months ago. And oh my goodness, Nikki, like watching these Dalcro's educators, the way they teach 6-8, this is super cool. So they give you, you have a partner and each partner, like you're holding either ropes or elastics and they have you just start to sort of like pull and push against each other wow. with the ropes or the, and before long you feel it one, two, three, four, five, six, one, dun, dun, dun. Wow. But you're sort of feeling off of each other. And you're, you know, each person is responsible for keeping like that same level of tension on either. It's so cool. And how effective would that kind of exercise be with a singer? Because again, a lot of times our singers aren't connecting with what the accompanist is doing, or we expect the accompanist to lead us or lead, or they're waiting for that. Oh, that's, I like that. Do you have any like really good teacher tips or... (laughs) Do you have any horror stories you want to share? So so there have been um, students who have been a better fit and than others. And there have, well, no, I I shouldn't say it that way. I should say I have found that I am not the best teacher for certain personality types. How about that? Oh, okay. Um, That's fair. (laughs) And I have also found that classroom management is not my gift. Oh, me neither. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want to teach you how to behave. I want to teach you like music. Like, don't make me do like, put that down, Susie. Don't hit him, Jimmy. Like, I don't want to do that. Just, (laughs) just come to my class and sing. (laughs) Right. I get so overwhelmed when they all want to talk to you at the same time, because I'm so trained as a private teacher and I don't have that distraction of other students. So that's probably one of the biggest challenges that I've had with my small groups. They're all wonderful little girls and I adore each and every one of them. Like I truly, truly adore them. I, and I feel, and I'm, I'm pretty tired after the class. It's only a 45 minute class. Nikki, I am not even kidding. I, so my classes are on Fridays. I don't work out on Fridays <laughs> because I have my, my Apple watch tells me that at the end of those classes, I have burned 200 calories <laughs> in two 45 minute classes. <laughs> I don't even bother trying to exercise on those days because like it is so all consuming. Yes. And you know, for people who are thinking about 
doing a, um, a, a group class, I would say start, start small, start slow. Mm. Mm-hmm. If, if you've never done it before, if you've never worked with groups of kids before it, it, like you say, it is totally different from the private studio experience and you might get in there and find that it is not for you and your temperament is not suited for it. And all of a sudden, oh no, you've committed to a whole semester of this and you've got 12 more uh, weeks and you're just miserable. Six or eight weeks, I think is a good starting place for mm-hmm. a lot of teachers. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't do a 12 right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, because I mean, you know, the the old stage rule of you want to leave them wanting more. Right. So that 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 gives people a jumping off point of you know, if for whatever reason there's a kiddo who decides this is not for me, I can't stand it. You know, you're not stuck with them the whole semester with both of you miserable. Right. And you know, but then people have the option of oh, I loved it so much, I can't wait to come back. You know, and then you 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 have that option too. And it also, I think, a smaller module gives you a chance to feel out there are some kids in here who need private lessons. There's some kids in here who aren't fed by the group dynamic and I need to find a way to clear some space in my, in my teaching schedule for them. Yes. And so, you know, I think also using it as a constant assessment of who is growing and who is being stifled because you know, I, I don't know. I, I fell into this too of, oh, if they're under 12, they're, they're just right for a group lesson and that'll be all they need. And I, you know, and of course it's not for, for some of them, they need one-on-one or they need, you know, just like a buddy lesson, you know, a, a two to one teacher ratio. A buddy lesson. That's a great idea. I think I saw that term on voice teachers for young singers. Maybe not. And then there's also the, like the 2020 lesson. Yeah. Yeah. So which overlaps right with another student. So yeah, that, that I think, um, is you have three and it's a rotating, yeah. Like you, so you have stations, so you might have like a music technology station and then like, um, you know, a composing and garage band. I think Molly was telling me that she has hers do like garage band compositions and then another one doing a private lesson and then they rotate. So they each get 20 minutes on each thing. That's an, that's another opportunity that I think voice teachers can look into. I would also say if people are thinking about starting group lessons, um, price it in such a way that you're also being compensated for your prep time. Yes. You know, when we have, when we do private lessons, it's not a ton of prep time because we usually have, you know, like there's a flow. We generally know these exercises work for this student. She's doing this rep. She's got this, you know, like we always kind of have that going in the back of our minds, but for kids, you have, you have to have so much planned because if you give them even a, like 30 dead seconds where you're kind of fumbling going, Oh, and we were going to do, you've lost them. Right. So you have to have, you have to be so on your game and ready to easily and smoothly transition them from one activity to the other. So don't cheat yourself of the prep time that you'll need. And, um, you know, pri- price it so that you're factoring that in because that's going to take some time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then the, yeah, then the getting in and out. So I, I did not plan this very well. I live on a hill with a really steep driveway oh. <laughs> and, um, and so bless these sweet people. They're coming in for their, le- for their group lessons. And I have, I really did not think this through. I've got all these group lessons stacked back to back with very little buffer time in between. So um, people are, you know, parking on the road and walking up my giant hill of a driveway. And because it's the winter that will never end, I'm out there like salting it five times a day. And it's just, it's really silly. So 
if you're going to do a series of classes, give yourself enough buffer time mm -hmm. to get people in and out comfortably mm -hmm. and safely. Um, yeah. cause I, I'm really having to scramble with that right now and make sure that, you know, people have a place to park. And I just wasn't thinking about, it. I was just thinking like, Oh, I've got the space. This works. This is great. Yeah. I wasn't thinking yeah. about where people are going to park. Yeah. Those, all those logistics that we talked about that in the, in the previous podcast. So if you haven't, if you haven't listened to podcast number 42, uh, all about group lessons, there's, we talk about that, but thank you for sharing that because yeah, that parking issues can really make or break. Well, even just people that teach privately, it takes one angry neighbor and making a phone call to the city bylaw and you're sunk. So we want to avoid all those headaches and just, mm -hmm. and it's how frustrating, right? Music teachers, we just want to teach music. Like we don't want to worry about all this stuff. We just want to share our love of singing and music and all of that. So right. um, yeah, well, thank you for sharing those. Now I yeah. wanted to know um, what resources would you recommend for teachers who are interested in more movement-based teaching slash learning? Yeah. So that, I love that question and I, I could talk your ear off, but I won't. Um, the, the first thing, if you're, if you're interested in ORF specifically, uh, ORF's big thing was, um, like I said, elemental music and, um, and how we interpret that people interpret it different ways. Um, where, wh how I try to apply in the private studio. And again, Orf is tricky because it's Orf Schulwerk. It's Orf schoolwork. So it is intended for groups. Uh, so there are aspects of it that are just going to be really hard to apply in a one-on-one -on -one lesson. But the philosophy of it, you know, the how you approach the student's innate creativity, that translates no matter what you're doing. Um, but so I would say first and foremost finding really quality repertoire, really, really solid um, you know, sometimes we have to give them the pop fluff that they want just because it makes them happy and, you know, and you meet them where they're at. Um, but giving them stuff that will, has stood or will stand the test of time, kids respond better to sophisticated art more than we think they will. They, they can handle, they can handle meaningful texts. They can handle rich accompaniments They that, you know, we don't need to dumb stuff down for them. And the, the way my or level two teacher, the way she explained it was, um, is this music that could be meaningful to both your grandmother and your grandchildren? Mm. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, and that's, again, that's not a hard and fast rule. Sometimes you do fluff just cause it's fun, but we don't, sh you know, we don't shy away from giving them sophisticated age appropriate material because they can do it. They can totally handle it. Um, so if you're just curious about what an ORF classroom looks like, YouTube is a fabulous resource, um, <laughs> to speak Canadian. Um, Rob Amchin is, um, he's a fabulous ORF educator and you can see him doing a lot of his teacher training stuff. So he, there are a lot of videos on YouTube of him training like music ed students and seeing how, like how it works in that way. Lynn Kleiner, probably a lot of people know her, uh, the music Rhapsody lady. 
she has fabulous um, thoughts and lesson plans and activities and all kinds of stuff. And then um, Nicola Mason, um, she was the director of the ORF program at University of Kentucky. Um, she also has a lot of videos on YouTube of just, you know, her in actual, actual classrooms with, you know, children students, not music ed students. Um, so you can see it in action. Um, I, so all of these societies, all of these pedagogies, um, have their own associations. So in the, in uh, the United States, there's the American Orf Schulwerk Association or mm-hmm. AOSA. I'll send you links to all this stuff. Yes. I'll um, post all of this on our podcast page for anybody listening. Okay. Um, so you can go for American listeners, you can go to the AOSA website and they have teacher trainings, they have workshops, you can search by state, by region and find, you know, what's happening in your local chapter, how you can, you know, just go take a workshop and just see what it looks like. A lot of times they'll even post the minutes from that. So you can see like what people have been doing, um, for AOSA members, they also have a vid, like a video library that you can look at, um. And there's a really fabulous, I think it's like a seven or nine minute, just what is ORF um, training video that you can watch. It's helpful. Um, In Canada, it's orfcanada.ca. Um, same, you know, Canadian ORF Society. And then in the UK, because I think you have a lot of UK listeners, don't you? I do, actually. Yes, we do. So wherever you are, you know, just search for Dalcros Canada or Dalcros Australia or, you know, Kodai um, UK. There's a British Kodai Academy or, you know, whatever. Um, All of these different philosophies have fabulous training programs. If you want to dive really deep, you can do a levels training. So all of these have level one, level two, level three. Mm-hmm. Usually it's like a two week program that you wow. can do usually in the summer. Cause it's for music educators. And, um, usually they're at universities. And so, you know, you just see what's, what's out there. Um, I would definitely start with taking a a workshop with your local chapter. Um, Then there are several books that are are really fantastic. Jane Frazee's Discovering Orf is a really great one for like, how do I implement this? I don't know what this looks like. And she, there's not, um, Orf is so student specific. There is not a set scope and sequence. Like by age eight, they should have dotted quarters and half notes yes. or dotted quarters yes. and half notes. Like there's not that, but there is, she has developed, which I really appreciate a general flow of you start with this element and then you add this element and then you add, you know, so it gives you a scaffolding, um, but it's not a hard and fast sequence. Like you have to check this box off before you can do this. Right. Um, And then, um, she also has a book called artful, playful, mindful, which is more philosophy. It's the, why we embrace creative play, um, why that's important as educators, how that affects us as a culture overall, um, and how that equips, how creative play equips students to be lifelong learners. Oh, I love Um, that. Yeah. And then, um, there's so many great books. The, the, if you're looking for specific movement exercises, I just got this book called meaningful movement. Mm-hmm. It's by, uh, doctors, Marla Butkey and David Frago. They are the two like chief Dalcros practitioners in the United States. And so, um, they've written this books and it's just, it's just movement activity after movement activity for students of all ages and abilities. And speaking of abilities, all of these things are adaptable. So whatever your students abilities or, um, you know, special needs might be, you can find a way to meet them where they are 
and create something that is specific to their capabilities. Oh, wonderful. Oh, this I have a feeling that after we say goodbye, I'm going shopping on Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. You might need to go. So Meaningful Movement isn't on Amazon. You're going to have to go to westmusic.com for that. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Actually, West Music, if people are curious about um, West Music is like the, the go-to website for Orf Kodai Dalcro's books and instruments. So Ooh. if you're looking for like, you know, a, like a beginner set of Orf instruments, go to West Music. Um, okay. That's or great, if you're okay. looking for like, a, you know, classroom unpitched percussion, you know, that, that, it's a good, or even if you're just looking for like, what books do I want to add to my list? They yes. have a bigger selection for this genre than Amazon does. Oh, well, thank oh. you for that. I'm going to, uh, that's where I'm going shopping later. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Kristen, so much for all of your time and your expertise. And um, are you are you okay with people reaching out if they have questions? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put all your contact information on our website. Thank you so much. This has just been so much fun. I hope you got anything useful out of this. Oh, my gosh. I'm, al- I'm already thinking like, oh, and I should have said this and I should have said that. And shame on me. I forgot that. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> A huge thank you to my dear friend Kristen for her wonderful insight and great teaching ideas. If you are interested in learning more about these organizations that we spoke about today, please visit our podcast page, thefullvoice.com backslash podcasts. And I really want to encourage everybody to check out Kristen's article on our blog. It's called Why Singers Need to Move. More great ideas and simple strategies to get your singers moving in your lessons. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please let us know and please leave a review on the iTunes page. As always... I am wishing you an inspired day of teaching and happy singing. You have been listening to the Full Voice Podcast. For more information and free teacher resources, please visit our website at www.thefullvoice.com. Made by Canoe Music. Canoe Music.ca.